splendidly transformed the country from a Republican beacon for mankind into a paradise for speculators. Ten years earlier, with a single stroke, he had transformed me from patriot to outcast. I removed from my pocket a watch, currently my only possession of value if one did not account my slave, Leonidas. I had, despite the decisions that had prevailed among the wise drafters of our Constitution, never quite learned to think of Leonidas as property. He was a man, and as good a man as any I'd known. It sat ill with me to keep a slave, particularly in a city like Philadelphia, whose small population of owned blacks numbered in the dozens, and one could find fifty free blacks for each bondsman. I could never sell Leonidas, no matter how dire my need— because I did not think it right to buy and sell men. On the other hand, though it was no fault of his, Leonidas would fetch at auction as much as fifty or sixty pounds worth of dollars, and it had always seemed to me madness to emancipate such a sum. So the timepiece, in practical terms, was currently my only thing of worth, a sad fact given that I had removed it from its rightful owner only a few hours earlier. Its glittering face told me it was now half-past eight, Dorland would have eaten his fashionably late dinner well over two hours ago, giving him ample time to collect his friends and come in search of me. It could be any minute now. I slid back into my pocket the timepiece I'd taken on Chestnut Street. The owner had been a fat jackanapes, a self-important merchant. He'd been talking to another fat jackanapes and had paid no mind while I brushed past him. I'd not planned to take the watch, nor did I make a habit of such things as common theft, but it had been so tempting, and there seemed to be no reason not to claim it and then disappear in that crowded street, clacking with the walking sticks of bankers and brokers and merchants. I saw the watch, saw it might be taken, and saw how I might take it. Even then, if that had been all, I would have let it go. But then I heard the man speak— it was his words, not my need, that drove me to take what was not mine. This man, this lump of a man who resembled a great and corpulent bottom-heavy bear forced into a crushed velvet-blue suit, had been invited to a gathering the next week at the house of Mr. William Bingham. That was all I knew of him, that he, a mere maker of money, nothing more than a glorified storekeeper, had been invited to partake of the finest society in Philadelphia— Indeed, in the nation, I, who had sacrificed all for the revolution, a man who had risked life in return for less than nothing, was little more than a beggar. So I took his watch, and I defy anyone to blame me. Now that it was mine, I examined the painting in the inside cover, a young lady of not twenty, plump of face, like the watch's owner, with a bundle of yellow hair and eyes far apart and open wide— as though she'd been in perpetual astonishment while she sat for the portrait. A daughter, a wife, it hardly mattered. I had taken from a stranger a thing he loved, and now Nathan Dorland was coming to avenge such wrongs, too innumerable to catalogue. "'Handsome timepiece,' said Owen, standing behind the bar. He was a tall man with a head long and narrow, shaped like one of the pewter mugs into which he poured his ales, with wheat-coloured hair that curled up like foam. Timepiece like that might go away toward paying a debt. He held out one of his meaty hands, covered with oil and filth and blood from a fresh cut on his palm, to which he paid no mind. I shrugged. With all my heart, but you must know the watch is newly thieved. 
He withdrew the hand and wiped it on his filthy apron. Don't need the trouble, but I ought to send you to fence it now before you lose it at game. Should I turn the watch to ready, I would not use it for something so ephemeral as a tavern debt. I pushed my empty mug toward him. Another, if you please, my good man. Owen stared for a moment, his tankard of a face collapsed in purse-lipped indecision. He was a young man, not two-and-twenty, and he had a profound, nearly religious reverence for those who had fought in the war. Living as he did in such a place as Helltown and moving through indifferent social circles, he had never heard how my military career had met its conclusion, and I saw no advantage in sharing information that would lead to his disillusionment. Instead, I favored other details. Owen's father died in the fighting at Brooklyn Heights, and more than once I had treated Owen to the tale of how I had met his father that bloody day.